Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. Dr. Heather Ann Thompson remains with us, author of Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971. She'll be speaking tonight at Red Emmas at 7 o'clock. Uh, 7, right? And you do not want to miss that. Have a chance to really have dialogue with her in depth at Red Emmas tonight uh, and be part of that conversation. We'll tell you more about that again before we leave out of here. We're also joined now by Dominique Stevenson, Program Director for the American Friends Service Committee and co-author with Eddie Conway of Martial Law, The Life and Times of a Baltimore Black Panther, and John Washington, translator and writer for The Nation, who wrote this piece this week may, be, may see the largest prison strike in U.S. history across 24 states. Inmates are sick, and, sick of poisoned water, solitary confinement, and forced labor. Uh, and uh, John and Dominique, welcome to the program, along with Heather Ann, who stays with us. Thank you. And you all can join us here at 410-319-8888 to join in on this conversation. So let me, uh, John, let me ask you to jump in real fast here just to describe what has taken place, what is taking place now in our prisons across the country in this kind of coordinated resistance inside the jails. Well, uh, that's a hard question to answer. I can talk right now more concretely about uh, what was planned to take place before September 9th. Um, But the difficulty in answering, um, in part, points to one of the parallels, uh, one of the, the potent parallels between what happened 45 years ago and what um, Heather described so definitely in her book, and um, what continues today, and that is um, the lack of transparency. You know, uh, the prison walls are as impregnable in some respects um, to get out for prisoners and to get in for the public and for media. So um, as of now, um, you know, there was a large coordinated strike planned um, for September 9th, the 45th anniversary of the Attica uh, uprising. And uh, we know we have confirmed at least two uh, in Alabama and uh, South Carolina. And, and Sorry, in Florida, there's three. But there's unconfirmed reports in at least 15 other states of either hunger strikes, uprising, protests, or labor strikes. Uh, and it, it, it's really difficult to understand exactly what's going on. Hopefully it won't take 45 years, but um, this is probably the most coordinated, as in um, from facility to facility uh, strike that we have seen. But as, in terms of significance or, or just numbers, um, we don't yet know exactly how many people are participating. And, and Dominic, I'm glad you joined us once again. It's always good to have you on the air with us. Um, I'm curious as to your, your thoughts um, about the the power of Attica then, what it says to all the work you and others are doing inside of prisons now, and the connections. Wow. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let me think on that one. The power of Attica then, um, just the, the notion of folks inside standing up and demanding to be treated uh, like humans. You know, that, the power, I think, is, that's the power of Attica, um, and I think it has resonated throughout the years, like with many of us, especially folks who, like, you know, worked with folks in the prison environment. But I also think that, you know, we're pretty much back to that point <laughs> all these years later in terms of the prison system, while in some ways some of the conditions may have been more sterilized and they looked a little, it looked a little different inside, you know, um, there's no access. You know, people are living in isolation in many prisons. They don't have access. They're increasingly being denied, you know, telephone time and things like that. They're here in Maryland. You know, they were attempting to stop uh, personal contact, you know, a brief embrace. 
during, you know, the uh, start of visit. And so it's like we are at a place where we've gone so far back, you know, that it's really just a, a very sad commentary. So one of the things I, I think to explore while we have our time together here, I mean, is in, in 1971, there was there's a movement building in America now. You can see that, whether it's what we're going to talk about shortly on Standing Rock or Black Lives Matter, many the things that are happening in America. But the 1960s leading to the 70s, early 70s, there was a, a, a different sense and of people who were being incarcerated and people standing with them. But part of what you write about, especially in the epilogue of the book, is that that was the moment when uh, we began this mass incarceration. Uh, people of color began flooding into prisons and becoming <laughs> incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And the image, that the public image of human beings who were put in prison was changed. Mm-hmm. They were no longer human beings at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but these predators... I, I, the language I think that you have in here, the, the, the American Correctional Association in 1971 said there was a, a new type of prisoner um, um, that, where in the 60s they had quite a knowledge, superficially and otherwise, of history, race problems, street fighting, and the vocabulary of radicalism. They now believe they were victims of a racist society. And kind of setting up what we have now, which is the absolute demonization of mm-hmm. all the men and women who are incarcerated. Well, I think it's really important to point out that one of the key reasons we get the war on crime in the first place, we, we start the war on crime in 1965 before there is a crime problem. The crime problem, uh, uh, the, the, the crime rates were historically utterly unremarkable in 1965 when we, bring, we, we begin it. What we were responding to was urban insurrection. We were responding to the black freedom struggle. This was a backlash very clearly from the very beginning. And what is it I'm talking about? I'm talking about the excessive policing of black communities, black and brown communities, that will lead to mass incarceration. So part of that war on crime was from its very beginning and its very intent targeting uh, a very specific population. And so we are here today, uh, you know, as the guests have described, um, you know, not only full circle, I would actually say we're in worse shape in many prisons than we were in 1971 because of the isolation. And, and frankly, I have to say, you know, we have a harder time knowing what's going on in prisons today than we did in 1971. This, this, you know, this, this, this point that we don't know how many strikes are happening or how many uprisings are happening, I, I really want to stress that. Uh, the public always assumes that if we can't come up with numbers or data that somehow it doesn't exist. Uh, it took me 13 years to write this book. Because uh, you can't get these records out of people. You have to dig at a level that, that you know, few have the time to do. Um, so we, we are in a much more repressive situation now than we ever have been. And, and, and that is down to a response to uh, calls for humanity all the way back to the 60s. And I think in some ways, in some ways uh, the, the fact that we have become so disconnected from that as a society mm-hmm. as a whole that we don't see it happening. We don't know what's happening in our midst, just like we don't see yep. the other things that are going on. And so and I, could you comment on that? Let me go first to, to John and, and, and then to Dominique to kind of follow up on what Heather was saying. John? Yeah. Yeah, I could, I could give a, you know, a, a perfectly concrete example of exactly what Heather was just describing. So um, there was, there's been a series of strikes leading up to um, this September 9th. Um, over the past couple of years, and then also this year as well, starting in April in Texas, uh, a number of 
smaller media outlets reported, and I talked to, to, to a number of inmates who described to me in detail um, how the strike happened in April in, in at least seven different facilities. And yet when I speak to uh, Texas Department of Criminal Justice officials, they flatly deny that there were any labor stoppages whatsoever. And, you know, it, it, it's impossible to square the two stories, and maybe the, the truth is somewhere in the middle, but, um, you know, they, they just, it's outright denial. And, um, and that is uh, a travesty because these people are, um, are being in, incredibly silenced, not only being incarcerated, but they're being silenced. And the conditions that they're living under are, as, again, as Heather just said, as bad or even worse in some cases, I think, than um, inmates were, were living in uh, 45 years ago. I mean, the, the numbers themselves, you know, there's, been ten, there's 10 times as many inmates right now in the United States as there were in, in 1971. And the overcrowding and the strained resources because of that uh, lead to increasingly squalid conditions that these people are living under. And just to quickly jump in on, oh, just just to add really quickly that um, uh, let's remind ourselves that these are public institutions that we pay for, we vote for, we endorse, and yet we can we are not allowed any information about them. Uh, so I mean, just to kind of chew on that for a minute, uh, the majority of prisons are public prisons; they're not private, and we have a right to know what happens in them and are shut down. Dominique. Yeah, actually, thank you for making that point, because what I was thinking is, in my experience working here in Maryland, the Department of Public Safety and Corrections is all powerful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They do what they want to do, how they want to do it, when they want to do it. Um, You know, and it it works because there is a certain amount of apathy, and there's also the fact that some of us have internalized this belief of that that rhetoric from the war on drugs about the population inside of these prisons people aren't understanding you know that these are their neighbors these are these are our family members these are people who in many cases could actually contribute to the community you've had some people in there for so long you know who've completed every possible program and those programs are really minimal inside so it you know it 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 it's just it's daunting for me here sometimes trying to to work within that system because at any point I can be banned just from being on the radio. They could decide right. okay, you can no longer come in. Um, but I'm not going to stop speaking out and not going to, you know, step back and not push when we need to push, which is what we've always attempted to do. But it's been very hard to get large or mass support from the public, and I think that that, to me, is the real issue, is that there's not a strong, vibrant movement around prisons in this country right now, especially when you see prisoners doing hunger strikes. That's like a dying man's proposition. You know, that's like a, a last, you know, option. And so I think that that's one of the, the key issues is that we really have to be more in tune with this because... Actually, a lot of these people are coming back out and they're coming back into our communities. And it's in our best interest to, to care about them because they're coming into the community. We want to ensure that they're going to be integrated in a, 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 you know, a way that's positive versus coming back broken and angry. 
And I love what you just said about the this othering of people inside. Um, one of the things I hope very, very much that the book on Attica does is it, it uh, reminds everybody exactly what you said. People on the inside, I mean, they are our, our children, our parents, our brothers, our sisters. And um, and uh, that's why, you know, at least in this book, I, I want you to know who these people are and what their names are and, and who, you know, what their what their children are like and so forth, because that's what we have to remind everybody. Um, yeah, you would care very much, right, what what's happening to your child on the inside. And we have to remind, uh, I think, listeners that these are everybody's children. You know, I think there's there's one of the things that strikes me about your book and uh, the the the, the the context of understanding our history is that what you reveal in this book is like what was revealed about what Nixon and actually said about what he was going to do in 1971 to black folks and hippies, as he put it, because we we, we can't kill them, so we can, but we can incarcerate them by mm-hmm. making things illegal and go after drugs, is that there are consequences of these public policies over the last 40 years that have led us to this point. Um, and I think that's to understand. We have to. Under, we can't understand why we are where we are or how to change it unless we understand what happened forty, fifty years ago to bring it to bear. Mm-hmm. I mean, that to me is the importance of our understanding this history, which is also connected, as you do in your book, to the eighteen seventies. Mm-hmm. That's right. Right. The other moment when there was a huge Black freedom struggle. Uh, it was called the Civil War, and uh, in response to the Civil War, every southern state basically changed the criminal justice laws to re-enslave black folks through the criminal justice system, to put them to work, to disfranchise them, and to marginalize them and revile them. And it is not insignificant that the next time in American history we have this massive of a buildup of criminal justice uh, funding policies is after the second black freedom struggle in the 60s. And it's also not insignificant that in both cases, prisons uh, went from, you know, uh, being insignificant in a region to being the dominant institution in a region. And then in the South, in the 1870s, uh, you know, for example, in a state like Georgia, prisons went from being, uh, you know, all white to all black overnight, but for policy reasons, not because white folks stopped committing crimes and black folks uh, lost their minds. <laughs> That's an important way to put it. And can we have quick closing thoughts here during this segment? I'll start with John Washington. We'll let Dominique, let you close, Dominic Stevenson close it out. John? Right, yeah. I'm I just, just um, kind of taking the momentum that, that, um, that Heather and Dominique have been talking about. You know, there, there are um, really disturbing parallels. Um, almost exact parallel between, you know, some, some of the things that were going on in the 1870s in the 1970s and today. Um, reading Heather's book, which is, is gripping, I think, timely and, and, and crucial right now, I suggest everyone reads it, um, I, I was horrified to see how many similarities um, are, are, are there are compared to what I'm hearing when I'm talking to inmates today and what she was writing about in what was happening in the 1970s. Um, so... It's a it's a critical read, and it's important to understanding what's going on right now. Dominic Stevenson, closing thought. I I hope that the strike continues. I hope other prisoners get word of this. I hope that it spreads like wildfire. This you know it's time for change. And Dominic Stevenson is program director of the American Friends Service Committee uh, and co-author with Eddie Conway of Martial Law, The Life and Times of Baltimore Black Panther. John Washington wrote the piece in the nation called This Week May Be the Largest Prison Strike in U.S. History. And, of course, we're talking to Dr. Heather Ann Thompson, author of the book Blood in the Water, Attic Uprising of 1971. 
She's a professor of history uh, and the University of Michigan and Afro-American African Studies uh, there at the University of Michigan. Tonight at 7 p.m., she will be talking about her book uh, at Red Emma, 7.30 tonight. Let me get that right. 7.30 tonight. Get there. Get a seat. It's going to be jammed as usual. Uh, get something to eat, chill out, and have a good conversation with Heather Ann Thompson tonight. Good to have you in the studio. It's so good to be here. Thank you. On the way to break, we're going to be hearing from folks uh, who are involved in what's happening um, uh, in North Dakota with the Native American resistance in this country. I want to remind you on the way there, though, this Friday, tune in from 1 to 4 p.m. as WEAA teams up at WURD in Philadelphia for a live broadcast from the Congressional Black Caucus 46th Annual Legislative Conference in Washington, D.C. My colleagues Sean Yost, Catalina Bird, Solomon Jones will bring you conversations live from state legislators and leaders from Rock Congress on issues that mean a lot to you from policing to living wage to the presidential race and more. Live from Congressional Black Caucus this Friday, 1 to 4, right here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. We'll be right back. Standing Rock next.